One of the issues for the Nashos is they're a forgotten part of Australia's war history. The worst part about it was when they said it's all over with now, just like the door being shut and you're left in the dark. And the hardest part was transitioning back into civilian life. They got nothing. And yet they stole us for two years. They put a rifle in your hand and said, this is how they kill people. You're listening to The Men Australia Forgot. Following the stories of Australia's last conscripts and their path to reparation. That's right, we're back once again for another episode of The Men Australia Forgot. My name's Aidan Taylor. It's great to have your company once again. Now, if you've been following the series for a while, you'll know that I love keeping across what Nasho Fairgo is doing and highlighting some of the key events that they're having around Australia. But I'll admit that being based in Brisbane, I can't get to as many of them as I'd like with the main ones being in Victoria. But in June, I did have the pleasure of attending the third Nasho Fago Brisbane meeting held at the G-Bung RSL. So a very important one for them as they look to keep growing their presence in southeast Queensland. But I was astounded to see how far some blokes travelled for the meeting. In fact, I'm about to introduce two people to you. Bruce Quinton and his wife Sylvia. They drove five hours from Kincoona Beach, which is just south of Bundaberg. And this is some of what they had to say. Being a National Serviceman, I was left in the dark after National Service, of course, like thousands of others. And I'm only just starting to find out, which, and I'm finding out a lot that I never knew. Uh, you know, we were left in the dark, basically. It's true about being the men that's been forgotten from the nation, you know. Now we're just finally catching up to a lot of the information that's available. What was the extent of your services? I did uh, 18 months National Service. My time was spent at Skyville, uh, just out of Sydney, as an officer training unit. Yeah. Spent all my time there. How did it impact you? Uh, the worst part about it was not knowing when you were let go when, when they said it's all over with now. Just like a door being shut and you're left in the dark. And the hardest part was transitioning back into civilian life. Uh, it took a long time for me to settle down. I had a lot of problems. Uh, I've been through counselling. Like many others, there's, there's not just myself, there's thousands of us been involved in all that. We were just shut off all of a sudden. One minute we're there gone next minute and transitioning back to civilian life was extremely hard talk about the the difficulty you had reintegrating and the fact you lost your income your jobs what was your take on that did you find your path in a career after that uh well i was lucky uh moved back to taree when i was finished because i was in sydney i went back to taree uh where the family was and i got a job on the council working for the red scheme which is the red scheme we called it instead of getting the social security or the dole money whichever way you want to say it we actually worked for what we got and that meant something because i felt i was achieving something but on the same token i'd go to the rsl club and because i was the next nasho we were made not welcome uh, and that happened a lot a lot of places uh, so that was all very difficult. You know, you just went to the pub, got drunk, and then went home trying to forget, but you didn't. It was still there the next day for a long time. For many years, I never knew about any help until about two, to, two and a half to three years ago, I finally found out through the RSL sub-brands organisation that there was help was available. I never knew about uh, mates for mates, open arms, all that sort of stuff. And just, you know, I just left everything. I wanted to get away from it. Probably a lot of it's been up that, that upsetting. I've ended up with two bad marriages, uh, lost a house, semi-trailer, the whole lot uh, out of the deal until some 30, nearly 33 years ago. I met Sylvia and yeah, she straightened me out. She's pretty good. Knocked me out once. So Sylvia, you, you met Bruce after his conscription, is that is that right? Yes. Yeah. 
And just from your perspective, what toll has it had on his life? Um, heaps, really. Um, trying to get himself organised into civilian life. It, it, it's as though there's been a wall put up and you've got to find your way around it or over it or, you know, it's, it, it is difficult. But, yeah, we've managed to get through it's really tough, but you know it helps to have people like yourself there to get through. And Sylvie's helped me a lot here. The support she's given me has helped me get through a lot of it, along with the, the kids that we had at the time between the two of us. Not knowing what to do or how to do things, or the, the hardest part was trying to interact with with everybody, and that was very difficult. I just shut everything off. I just went blank. There's a lot of talk about the gold card and the fact and the push for Nashos to get it. There's a cost factor involved. It's very expensive. Do you think that it's a reasonable ask or do you think somewhere in between is needed? Well, it's, um, it's a case of it would be one thing that's off your mind about wondering how you're going to be able to afford to get different things. You know, I've had cancer and knees replaced and all that sort of caper. Um, Finding the money or on the other side, if you're on Medicare, it's the time involved in having to wait. Whereas if you've got the gold card or the white card's updated quite a bit, uh, the waiting time is cut in half because the doctors that know they're going to get their money, instead of waiting for the government handout, they'll put you on the line a lot quicker. So that's one thing, that's a burden off your mind, no matter which way you go. I know the gold card, is a, it's a touchy subject. Yeah. Um, people, yes. yeah, people, some people say, well, if you didn't fight, you don't deserve it. But what would you say to people who, who have that response to you? Well, what I would say is, with, with all my time being in the army, I didn't know from one day to the next whether I was going to get on the boat and go and fight. I had a kit bag that was packed ready all the time, like everybody else had the same thing. We didn't know. We just simply weren't told anything. And that was the cruel thing about it, being National Service. They didn't want you to know. That was it. No information came forward. It made it very difficult. When you got back, what help did you get? None. I had no idea there was help available in order to help transition back into civilian life again until... Like I said, about three years or three and a half years ago, that's when I found out. So that's a big gap. That was 50 years waiting. When did you find out about National Fair Go and how? I found out through a mate through the sub-branch. Uh, he had an email. He told me about it. I rang up and, yes, it's been good. A lot of information come forward. It's worthwhile. And that's the key thing, being able to talk to people that don't provide sympathy but provide understanding. That's the most important part. We don't want sympathy. We want to be understood. And isn't that a really nice turn of phrase, that they don't want sympathy, they want to be understood? You're listening to The Men Australia Forgot, telling the stories of Australia's last conscripts. Now, something else that stood out to me from what Bruce was saying is when he was talking about how he he didn't know about any of this help that existed until about two years ago. But to be honest, I wasn't surprised by this because it's a common theme coming up in all of the conversations I'm having with Nashos. And I think it's down to two reasons. Firstly, because computer literacy is a real problem. All of the important information is distributed online these days. And a lot of you have said that the government hasn't done enough to promote that beyond the online world. So that's certainly something we'll focus on later in this series. And it's also because you say that you weren't ever told about it when you finished, or more specifically, that there wasn't much help available to you like there is today for people who are in the Defence Force, who've been given a lot more. 
Now, something else that touches on this very point was about the provisional access to medical treatment program, and this came up in discussion during the meeting. It's a list of the 20 conditions that you can claim for. So if you've got, a, for instance, a leg injury that you think is linked back to your service, you can go through this provisional access to medical treatment program and you can get cover for those ailments or conditions up until when the DVA decides whether they'll take liability for it. So it means that you don't have to wait for the government to approve a claim before you can start getting that treatment paid for. The only downside is that if the DVA turns around and they don't sanction it, so they say that they will not accept liability for it, then you have to pay for treatment from that point. The DVA will not ask you to go back and pay for all of the treatment you've received up to the point of that deliberation. And you can get a full list of those 20 conditions that are claimable by you know, just going online and typing in the provisional access to medical treatment program. So it's a very useful tool. Now, a bit earlier, I was talking about some of the great people who I got to meet on the day. And before I let you go, I have to introduce you to a guy called Kerry Casson, who lives in Ipswich. So he was conscripted in 1971, and he was part of the second last intake of the National Service Scheme. And he's got a great story about the days leading up to when he was expected to go to Vietnam. And I'll let him explain it. I don't want to give it away. But here's some of my catch up with Kerry Casson after the meeting. Uh, my name's Kerry Casson. I'm joined the uh, Nash Fergo by accident. Someone told me about it, but my journey is that I knew nothing about knew nothing about it. It's only by us playing bowls. A chap overheard me say that I was in the army in national service, and he said, "You know, you can apply for a white card." And I said, "Oh, don't know about it. What are you on about?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, yada yada yada." So I jumped online, applied for it, got it, and then it was only a few a month or two later. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he, I told him, he said, well, you know, you possibly, you, I'll cover you for that as well. I said, well, you knew nothing about it. You, no one, and no one ever told me. Anyway, I applied for it, went through the whole process, and I was, and I eventually got approved and got applied for it. But the thing is, I've met so many people who've served in the armed forces, but don't know nothing about the white card. I mean, my, for example, my brother-in-law was the Air Force for 20-odd years, but they just order discharge, and all the old, the new ones, as I said here today, they get told about it, and they automatically get a card. But the people serving in the armed forces, so many people know nothing about the white card. So you're quite complimentary of the whole process of getting your compensation for your prostate cancer? Yeah, I, yeah, I, my, my journey to get the compensation, um, Maybe I got some bit of computer skills. I could go online. I could do it, and uh, yeah, eventually I got approved, and I, I had to. I kept all my receipts, so eventually, um, yeah, what I paid, I, I, I did get it back. But the trouble is, is so many different rules. But I learned a lot here today um, about importance of seeing a, a advocate. So, and I tell everyone that too when they want to apply for the white card. If my brother-in-law, for example, has got no computer skills hasn't even owned a computer. I said, well, go to the RSL, see the advocates, and they'll help you, which he did. And he went for the whole time, and he got, and, and he got his white card. So, yeah, so he's working slowly. <laughs> and what was the extent of your service as a NASHO? Uh, I, was, I was in the second last intake of national service um, in 71. I was uh, conscripted and went to Singleton, then I went to Pukapungal, then I ended up at uh, Townsville. 
My story in national service is probably a, a good one. I, and some of those journeys, and I look at myself and say, I was lucky. I mean, I was blessed that I didn't, I, I did, wasn't abused by some sergeant or whoever and mental health issues and people lost, lost their jobs and, you know, terrible, lost girlfriends and all that sort of stuff. I went back, I got my job back. I mean, I was lucky, I'm one of the blessed ones. But one of the, uh, matter of fact, I was due to go to Vietnam. I was training to go to Vietnam. That's when golf got in. And the, and the fun, that's funny, funny about it. I still remember the day I was in Brisbane having a drink in the pub and I got arrested for underage drinking, but I was due to go to Vietnam. I could, I could go and get shot up, but I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't drink at a pub. I, I wasn't, tra- it was 21 of those days. It was 20, you had to be 21. And I was under 21. And I got fined uh, for underage drinking. And I said, I remember saying to the cop at the time, mate, I'm due to fly out to Vietnam in a few months' time. I thought it was a few, a few months down the track. Doesn't matter. Got, got fined and got a record over drink, underage drinking. So uh, how's that for an irony? <laughs> you get fight for your country, but you can't drink anyway. Isn't that great? So the poor bloke was in the pub. He was having a couple of schooners. And the police comes and taps him on the shoulder saying, mate, you can't be drinking. You know, he's about to head to Vietnam, and if he could pick up a rifle, potentially shoot people, yet he couldn't drink, that is a really good point. So thanks for your story there, Kerry. So that's a wrap from the third Brisbane meeting for Nash Fair Go at the G-Bung RSL. And I was really keen to share some of those things with you. So as I said, if you're keen to find out more about the Provisional Access to Medical Treatment Program, you can do so by searching for it online and find a full list of the 20 conditions that you can claim for under the program. But that's about all we've got time for today. And I'll be back with more on The Men Australia Forgot very, very soon. So thanks for your time. Bye-bye.